If you will, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And again, if you are a visitor with us, we do welcome you. We're very thankful to have you. It is our common practice to go through the Scriptures verse by verse. And we find ourselves this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we will be looking at verses 13 through 25. The title of my sermon is Building Up the Church. This is part 2. And if you missed uh, last week, um, I will do the best I can to catch you up, but I would recommend getting that CD and listening to that, or you can check it out on the website so you know what we're talking about. Um, the key words this morning for our worshipers in training are build, church, and edify. And last week we began chapter 14, and we saw that the greatest... The great context of this chapter is about building up the church, is about edification. And specifically, the Apostle Paul goes into a discussion on the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And we uh, discussed what these two gifts are and how they work into this uh, greater context of building up the church, and we will continue on that this morning. If you recall, we talked about what tongues is. Namely, as we see in Acts chapter 2, the first mention of tongues in the New Testament is that tongues were actual human languages. This was a gift given by God to man through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak in human tongues or human languages. And Paul gives the instruction that these uh, tongues utilized within the context of the church need to be interpreted by an interpreter. And we also saw that tongues, uh, while being interpreted, have equality with prophecy in terms of them being revelatory. That when tongues were used, something was being revealed, and therefore, this, of course, is supernatural. This is a sign gift. In other words, it's giving evidence to the power and work of God. And we will speak more of this in a little while. And we looked at prophecy as being revelatory. That the prophecy given through the prophets in the New Testament was foundational for the building of the church. And that the words of the prophets were infallible and often uh, became canonical. They became uh, the words that we now have in the Scriptures. And so, uh, looking at these two together, we see the Apostle Paul building this argument um, that they are to be used for the edification or the building up of the church. And we... We see then in Paul's argument that this gift of tongues was secondary to prophecy because prophecy on its own edifies the church. Tongues does not. It is in need of something else, namely interpretation. We see two types of tongues that Paul is referring to in this chapter. The first we see is tongues plural. We see this in verse 5 we looked at last week. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. This is the legitimate gift of languages. Notice the difference. Versus the second type, which is, if you have the King James Version, it says an unknown tongue or a tongue. 
We see this in verses 2 and verse 4. And so this was a, a sort of unintelligible gibberish. And we talked at length about how this was, by the Corinthian church, taken from paganism. This was a pagan practice in which they sort of went outside of themselves. They supposedly communicated with God in some sort of heavenly language. Well, we know at great length from the historical record that this was, and still is today, the practice of pagan religion. And so, as a result of that, uh, many have come to an understanding that there is also a sort of private prayer language. And we talked about how this is very contrary to the very gift, the purpose of the gift itself, which is for the edification of the church and not the individual. And through all of this, and as we've been building since chapter 12, we have established time and again that the true gifts of tongues and prophecy were limited to the apostolic era. And if you want to hear about that, you can listen to the sermon from chapter 12 on verses 8 through 13. But we do not believe that these gifts have continued into the church today. Through them, we have the prophetic word now recorded in the scriptures. The apostles laid the foundation for the church. The church was established. And now we have the fullness of God's truth revealed to us in the scriptures and no longer need these things to be employed. Nevertheless, Paul is giving instructions to the church at Corinth because they had it all mixed up and they were using these things uh, in the way of the pagans. They were using these things in a way to edify themselves and not edify the church, not doing as he said at the beginning of chapter 14 and pursuing love in their use of them. And so now we will continue on this argument. We will look at verses 13 through 25. I'm going to try and move quickly through the verses and spend some time on application this morning. Namely, one asks the question, what principles are found in the text for us to apply in the church today? Especially in light of this chapter being Paul's instruction specifically to the Corinthian church about these gifts of tongues and prophecy which have ceased in their use today. So, let's look at these together. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, notice singular, should pray for the power to interpret. Now, I believe that Paul here is using a bit of sarcasm. The Corinthians were so concerned about having this ability to pray in tongues because it was this outward gift that was very showy and drew a lot of attention. And so they all wanted to be able to do this and therefore they resorted to a perversion of the true gift. And so they were then praying in this sort of gibberish. Why? Why was it so important to them? Well, as I just mentioned, it was something to draw a great deal of attention, but it was also something that drew a lot of emotion rather than engaging the mind. And Paul has something to say about that as we move along. So Paul here, I believe, is sarcastically saying, you are not saying anything. You are rambling along with meaninglessness. It means nothing. So why not pray instead that you can interpret all of this madness? It means nothing. So why am I assuming he's being sarcastic here? 
Well, first, we know all through 1 Corinthians, and really if we look at all of the letters of Paul, sarcasm is not outside of his character at all. It is very commonly employed in his arguments. Now, the only alternative to this interpretation of this verse assumes that Christians can simply pray and receive whatever gifts that are wanted. But that's not how the gifts are given, right? We saw this in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Nowhere are we told to pray to receive specific spiritual gifts. God gives them to His people and we are called to utilize them for the good, for the edification of the church. In other words, instead of confusion, Paul is saying then, seek after something that is useful. And so he is beginning here rebuking them, continuing to rebuke them for this kind of unintelligible gibberish that they're engaging in. He moves on in verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, Spirit here is not talking about the Holy Spirit, or he would have said the Holy Spirit. Uh, Spirit, this word, can also be understood as blowing wind in the air. That I'm simply, as I talk, I'm blowing wind. There's wind coming out of my mouth. So Paul is saying, if I pray in an unintelligible, unknown tongue, my wind may be blowing in the air. I may be saying something, but it has no meaning. Thus, my mind is unfruitful. When we speak gibberish, our mind is not engaging in any way. There's nothing to engage. There's no benefit. No one is edified. Now, here's here's the, the deal that Paul is getting at. He's drawing this contrast between the counterfeit of the gift, namely this gibberish being spoken, and the true gift itself. Now, counterfeit gifts, no matter what they are, always set themselves up to be some sort of emotional experience and have no mental benefit for those who are engaged in it. And as we mentioned last week, God has nowhere in His Word and has never wanted mindless emotional experience for or from His people. Emotions do matter. Don't get me wrong in saying that. God has given them to us. But the question is, who is in control of them? Are they controlling you or are you leading them? You'll often hear things like, that was some great worship. I really felt the Spirit move amongst us. It was just wonderful. And so we should ask, how were you challenged from the Word of God? How did you grow deeper in your understanding of God? How are you going to apply the truths of what you learned today in your life? And one's answers to these questions are very telling. 
Because often for many people, worship is simply very emotional. It's a very emotion-filled experience. But what is the igniter of that emotion? Is it the truth of God's Word? Is it the conviction of sin or the amazement of God's grace or the devastation of the reality of hell? The joy of knowing Christ and Him crucified? Is that engaging our emotions or is it a few slow chords played on a guitar or a piano? A few cliche phrases that we say that make us say amen. Is that what's engaging our emotions? Certain emotions are commanded in the Scriptures. But how we come to those is of utmost importance. And if we let our emotions simply lead us, then we're going to find ourselves in a very deadly place. It will kill our faith. It will kill our hope because one day suffering will come and there will not be a guitar there to help cheer us up. Clichés and cutesy sayings will have nothing to offer us. You will need the sure foundation of the Word of God and the promises of God. The solid footing of knowing that God will do what He says He will do. That He is the author and the finisher of your faith and will keep you to the end. And that the death of Christ is nothing, and that death in Christ is nothing to fear because death in Christ is gain. Your emotional experiences cannot communicate that to you. Only the sure foundation of the Word of God. The Corinthians did not understand this. They were always in search of some emotional experience and they even resorted to pagan practices to make it happen. And unfortunately, we see this same error in the church today. And if we're not careful, we can begin to portray that the Christian life is simply going from one spiritual high to the next. And then we just kind of Grin and bear it in between. We see it all the time, right? We may go on some sort of retreat and we get this very emotion-filled experience. We're on this spiritual high and then we come home, reality sets in and then eventually it sort of tapers off and we find ourselves again at a low. And so, then we go to a concert. And we worship in music and song and we have a great time and we're in emotional high again and then in time that begins to taper off. But praise be to God, we have a camp coming up. So we go to that and we are on an emotional high. And so we have this roller coaster. But one day those experiences run out. Then what? Do we have the sure footing, the sure foundation, the truth of God's Word? Don't hear me saying that these things are wrong or bad in and of themselves. They're not. But not, do not let that be that which fuels your faith. We must be committed to engaging in that which benefits the transforming of our hearts by the renewing of our minds. We 
can never simply blow wind into the air and just simply speak words that have no meaning. Let us not be simply chasing after the emotions. Verse 15, Paul asks then, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So Paul is saying, I pray and sing with wind or with spirit, and I pray with my mind or I sing with my mind and understanding. So in other words, he doesn't just babble some sort of nonsense. He engages his mind and he thinks on God and intelligibly praises God and ensures that all who may hear him understand what is being said. Very simple. It's an intelligible engaging in the Word of God, in the singing of praises unto God with others as we pray and sing. He goes on in verse 16, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So if you suppose you are giving thanks with some unintelligible babble, some gibberish tongue, people who do not have any understanding, which would be everyone, can't say, Amen! There is no giving of thanks because he doesn't know what you just said. Think of it like this. We've, we've all been around uh, parents who have young children, and their children are just kind of learning to talk, right? Mine's sort of there now. And as they say these words, everyone else around is like, I, I, don't, I don't know what they just said. I really want to help you. I don't understand a word you're saying. But mom and dad are over there uh, tracking right along, right? They've heard all the words as they're developing. They know how it's worked out. They know exactly what's being said. But no one else around them can say, Amen, I understand. Let it be. And so Paul is saying this very same thing. If we're going to speak, let us speak so that everyone understands and not just those who have this intimate connection to whatever's going on in your words. Let us engage fully in what is being proclaimed. So Paul is saying, you may understand what's being said. You might even be exercising the true gift. Now, that was a long shot in Corinth, but a few probably did have the true gift of tongues. But you are not edifying, as is intended, because there is no understanding. And if there's no understanding, there is no edification. You might be encouraged in your own heart, but no one else benefits from that. Now, some use this verse to justify a private prayer language. But, as we said before, these gifts are for edification, for the building up of the church. How does me praying in private edify the rest of the body? It doesn't. And even in public, this gift is useless, useless without interpretation. And so Paul continues to call them to intelligible speech. Verse 18, I thank God 
that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that the true gift is not wrong or evil in their context when it's properly used. It is a true gift. But the the Corinthians had it all mixed up with paganism. In Paul's case, though, we learn also in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul is affirming that he has all of the true gifts of an apostle, all the marks of an apostle. He's fully able to use the spiritual gifts. So we see here now that Paul has the gift of tongues, and I believe for very good reason, right? What did Paul do? He traveled all throughout the Gentile regions and had the God-given ability to use the languages of the people as he was planting churches and proclaiming the gospel. So he was able to present the gospel clearly, to show the power of God's presence that this Jewish man came into their culture and was able all of a sudden to speak their language. It authenticated his message. And he probably utilized this gift in many instances. But he goes on to write in verse 19 that in the church he would rather prophesy than speak in tongues. Because tongues simply did not have the same usefulness in the church as they did in evangelizing the Gentiles and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he says, I'd rather speak five words with my mind instead of 10,000 words in a tongue. And now to us, this is really like saying five words to whatever the biggest number we can name is. I don't know what that is. Quintillion. Five words with my mind rather than quintillion words with unintelligible speech. In other words, Paul would rather get up, proclaim the truth, sit down, instead of using a quintillion words of gibberish that no one understands because no one learns, no one grows, and no one is edified. And so notice that Paul places a very high premium on the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And we ended last week about this. It's very important as the church gathers that the Word of God is proclaimed. We must be instructed. We must be challenged by the Scriptures. And this must be our priority. He goes on in verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In other words, Paul is saying, grow up. We saw this same phraseology used in chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So Paul launches a very heavy indictment here on the Corinthians. So he starts by saying, brothers. It's like saying, I love you, but you're acting like a three-year-old. And just in case you didn't know, having another grown man tell you you're acting like a three-year-old is not a good thing. So he says, brothers, grow up. 
Your mind is, remember verse 14, unfruitful. You are not thinking biblically. Now my daughter, she's a year and a half. And she's not yet where she understands that the world is not about her. Give me time, I'm working it out of her. She doesn't quite get that yet. So, when she goes to put her finger in the light socket, and we simply give a firm no, there's instant tears. But then she's back at it ten minutes later. So you might see that and think, oh, how sweet. It's sweet because she's so sensitive to discipline. She doesn't want to disappoint her father. Whatever. (laughs) You might be very optimistic about my child and think she pulled a John the Baptist and was converted in the womb. I know better. She is a sinner and she needs Jesus. And I love that girl, but she needs Jesus, just like I do. But why the crying? Not because she's sensitive to discipline, because I said, no, don't do that. And she didn't get to do what she wanted to do. Because in her little mind, the world revolves around her. And when someone tells her it doesn't, that's very devastating. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, stop this. It is not about you. Stop being so simple-minded. And furthermore, you have it all backwards. You should be infants in evil instead. But you're quite mature in that. So no doubt he's addressing their selfishness and their anti-intellectualism in favor of these emotional experiences. He goes on in verse 21, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. So here in verse 21, Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 28 verse 11. And then he goes on to explain its meaning in verse 22. So it's very clear what he's saying that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. Literally for the purpose of unbelievers. So there's three ways that tongues are a sign that we see in the Bible. The first way is cursing. He says in in that verse uh, 21 from Isaiah 28, I will speak to this people. What people is he talking about? He's speaking of unbelieving Israel. Just for background here, around 705 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah was engaged in gross, vile disobedience to the Lord. So God delivers a message to them through the prophet Isaiah to warn them that the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom, namely his judgment, their exile, all of these things, was going to happen to them as well because of their unbelief, because of their apostasy. This is the message of Isaiah 28, which Paul is quoting here. 
It is a warning from the prophet that they will be judged and it will come to them through the Babylonians. So here's how Isaiah tackles this thing in 28. In verse 7, he finds the leaders of Israel, the prophets and the priests, they are all in a drunken stupor. Isaiah writes, they, uh, These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. In other words, they were unable to fulfill their duties because they were drunk. And now I want to keep you here a little longer so I have to get you to stop thinking about lunch. Verse 8 says, For all their tables were filled with filthy vomit with no space left. Nice. So Isaiah comes to this party and he finds them all in this drunken mess, so much so that they vomited all over the tables to where there's not a place that was clean. I don't make this stuff up, it's in the Bible. So Isaiah unloads this message of terrible rebuke on them of this coming judgment. And so what's their reaction? Verse 9 They're saying, to whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? In other words, who could he ever teach? Babies. Why? Because he always goes precept upon precept, precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. He must think we're babies. He keeps saying the same things over and over again. So they mock him, they don't appreciate his attitude, they begin to sneer at him, and they call his teaching simple and childish. They never hear him in the end. So then in verses 11 through 12, Isaiah speaks the word of the Lord again, and he says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. In other words, God says, You wouldn't hear the simple, repeated, childlike message of Isaiah, so I'm going to talk to you instead in a language you will never understand. So he was referring to the Babylonians who were already surrounding them and would later take them out of their land, destroy them, slaughter them, and burn them. And when they would hear what was being said to them, this unintelligible language of the Babylonians that they couldn't understand, they would know that the judgment of God had fallen. So what has all of this to do with the Corinthians? The same exact thing. Just as when Isaiah said it, those languages are a sign to unbelievers today that God is to act in judgment. So the first way that tongues is a sign is cursing. Second, it seems contradictory, but it is also a blessing. But we're looking at it now in a different context. Quite simply, as we mentioned last week, It is a blessing in that it is a sign of the reversal of what happened at Babel when God scattered the people and mixed mixed up the languages. So now we see this also as a blessing. 
that all were scattered and now in Christ, the gospel goes to every tongue, tribe, people and nation and we are brought back together in Christ. And so the speaking of the languages is that the gospel is for all men and not simply for the Jews. And thirdly, tongues is a sign of authority. God gave the gift or the ability of tongues to the apostles and to the prophets as an authenticating, validating sign to show their authority when establishing the foundation of the church. It's a show of God's power in the words that they heard, that what is said by them is true. So an easy way to remember this for the tongues is ABC. Authority, blessing, curse. There's no indication that tongues is for private prayer. Nowhere does it prove that it's being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And once the church was born, the tongues were no longer necessary. Second part of verse 22 Prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. As opposed to tongues, prophecy is for believers. This verse literally reads, Prophesying serves not those who are unbelievers, but rather those who believe. That little phrase, is a sign, is not in the Greek. And this is an important distinction to make because prophecy is not pointing to another reality like tongues is. Prophecy is the proclamation of God's truth. And it in and of itself is what edifies. God's word edifies. And so the Corinthians were hysterical, selfish, self-centered, ego-building. They confused all of this. And Paul says, cut it out. Pursue edification. Prophesy. Proclaim God's word. Why can we say that's God's Word? Well, Peter said that the Bible is a more sure word of prophecy. So tongues is a sign to unbelieving Jews and shows that Christianity is worldwide. It's not just this Jewish phenomenon that came. It authenticated the speakers or the messengers. It showed Israel has once again rejected God. And if tongues were legitimate today, they would serve the same purpose. I don't think we want that. Verse 23, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So Paul here is talking about the corporate church gathering. Okay? This is important because many would say today that the church simply should meet in homes and be scattered about and never come together. Paul is very clear here that all of the church is coming together, all meeting corporately with one another. And he says that tongues, even the true gift of tongues, being utilized in the corporate gathering of the church, like we are right now, would leave unbelievers to hear and say, these people are out of their minds. I heard that guy speaking my language just a minute ago, and now he's babbling off something I don't even understand. The Gentiles would not understand the language, and unbelieving Jews would be confused by all of this chaos. 
Hence his instructions later on. We'll see next week in how to use it properly. And so he's saying, you don't want people coming from the outside to believe you're out of your mind. Verse 24, but if all, prophes- if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So prophecy leads to conviction of the truth, to edification of the body. In other words, the gospel is advanced. An unbeliever hears the truth. By the truth, there's conviction. There's judgment. Secrets of the heart are made known. Their sin becomes apparent. And with humiliation and hatred of their sin, they will fall on their face and they will worship God. This is the result that comes when the prophetic Word of God is proclaimed. The Scriptures are abundantly clear on this. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. So now here's the deal. I can preach my brains out up here, and God could add hundreds to us. But if we are not all pursuing love, and we are not all using our gifts to build up and edify the church, it will all fall flat and we will end up like the Corinthians, childish with unfruitful minds. We don't want that. We are, in our culture, programmed to think that this whole thing about living and loving and serving and fellowshipping and following Jesus is actually a very individualistic thing. It's me and Jesus. And that's all that matters. Forget everyone else. But then what ends up happening is that the Christian life becomes this cold, stagnant thing that we just fake. We toss aside everyone else. We'll maybe pretend that we're in it to win it. But we're just hanging around, we're just doing our deed for the week, and we go home and turn it off. Listen, if you're you're here, just to check a box and say that you did it, or maybe to give your money and listen to a sermon, you've completely missed the point. And you really have a pretty lame hobby. Because this means nothing to you in the end. So you might as well be engaged in something else. But we must come together with this understanding that we need each other. And I hope you're here for the hearing of the gospel. Or if you have questions to have those answered. Or if you're searching and curious and confused that you're coming to hear the truth that God has delivered to us once and for all. And we need each other for that. And all of us must be committed to building up the church for one another. And we can't fake it. We can't fool anybody. Because when everyone else around us is engaged in that, we are exposed very quickly. How did the early church see 3,000 people added to their numbers in one day? Yes, God's sovereignty, of course. But what were they doing? 
They were committed to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they were with each other day by day by day. They spent all their time together, edifying one another, encouraging one another. And as a result of that, God was adding to their numbers day by day. Now, if you're here and you're thinking, I want God in that way. I want to know Him. I want to know and love His people. I want a place to be able to encourage and edify and build up the church. Then, listen, God calls you to repent of your sin and to believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't call us to fix our behavior, to become moral, or to clean ourselves up and then come to Him. He calls us to come to Him, and He will clean us up. And He will place us in community. And He will reveal our gifts to us. And He will give us the joy of serving for the sake of His kingdom. And all of this is possible because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. In taking all of our sin, all of our selfishness, all of our ambition to serve the individual, and all the sin that's wrapped up in that. And He has taken that upon Himself for those who believe. And God the Father has crushed Him. And as a result, He has given to us His righteousness. That we would have a right standing with God. We exchange our sins for His righteousness. What a great gift. What a great joy that we have. What a great salvation it is. That God would give to us His Son. And in doing so, that we would receive righteousness. That we can stand boldly before God on the day of judgment and plead His blood on our behalf. And in the meantime, that we could serve and love one another, we can love our neighbors, and through that, see the transforming work of God in the lives of those who hear and heed the call of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the reality of Your Word that transforms, that renews, that convicts, that challenges, that builds up. Father, help us all to be honest in our own hearts to understand where we fall short in building up the church and seeking to edify others. As we gather, as we are apart, whatever it is, Father, give us a great desire to be intimately woven together with one another. Father, You are gracious to have given us brothers and sisters, to have adopted us all as sons and daughters if we are in Christ. Father, help us to live 
knowing that we are brothers and sisters. And not simply mere acquaintances. Help us to give our lives to serve the good of others, to build up the church, to hear the word proclaimed, to engage in true intimate fellowship, to look forward to gathering at the table together, to praying with and for one another, to serving our community side by side, bringing the gospel to the nations, one with another, and praising the Lord Jesus Christ, united in one heart and one mind. Let that be us, Father. Let that be said of us. Give us that great desire. Give us that great conviction. Give us a great hope in Christ Jesus. That as we gather, we have this in mind. That we are here not simply for ourselves, but for also the good of others, for the glory of Christ, for the joy of your people. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sure foundation of your word that all that we are and all that we do is not simply founded upon emotions and spiritual highs and experiences that we have here and there but that we have a lasting and sure foundation in the Word that You have delivered once and for all. Thank You, Lord, for making Yourself known to us, for transforming our hearts, that we would believe and that we would walk by faith unto the last day.